Welcome to the podcast where we let the objects do the talking. Metaphorically, of course, not literally. If they could talk, they'd probably lie back on the couch in a louche way with an exotic cocktail in one hand and a fun-sized sausage roll in the other and bare their souls. Ah, they'd say wistfully, the stories I could tell you. I'm Ben Miller and this is Art and Stuff. Now, have you ever done that thing where you put something really important in a safe place and then realise sometime later the hiding place was so ingenious you can't remember where it was? Well, that's rather what happened with the artefact we're talking about today. The Galloway Hoard is a collection of more than a hundred items. It contains all sorts of treasures from gold jewellery and intricate silverwork to silks, rock crystal and other precious objects. The hoard was found by metal detectorists in 2014 in Galloway, southwest Scotland, more than a thousand years after it was first buried. So next time you're trying to remember where you put that important document, uh, your passport, the cat's vaccination record, spare a thought for that unknown person who carefully hid away their precious treasures and then, for whatever reason, never came back for them. So if you're looking for a story of buried treasure... Invading Vikings, far-reaching trade routes, Anglo-Saxon bling, and a mysterious character called Egbert. Stick with us. I was captivated and so excited to hear about the Galloway Horde. Even the words Galloway Horde sound exciting. This is a unique opportunity with the Galloway Horde to open up a window into the Viking Age. There are things that we have never seen before. There are things that we still need to do a lot of investigation about to really unlock what they meant. It's like receiving a whole new dossier of information from the past. Looking into the Galloway Horde makes you question what was happening in the area. And I think when people see the Galloway Horde, they will have a connection to our ancestors, to the people who were here. But of course the fascinating question about the Galloway Horde is why did they bury so much wealth and not come back? This massive amount of wealth has just sat there undiscovered. What happened that stopped the people who buried that hoard coming back? Let's have a formal introduction, shall we? The Galloway Hoard, unknown artists, a collection of gold, silver, precious objects and organic materials. National Museums, Scotland, Edinburgh. Since the Galloway Hoard's discovery in 2014, an awful lot of detailed work has gone on to conserve and understand the vast range of items it contains. So let's dig deep and find out more. My name is Martin Goldberg. I am a curator at National Museum Scotland. I look after the early medieval and Viking collections. What has been apparent from the moment of its discovery is that the Galloway Hoard is exceptional and it is of undoubted international significance. Certainly in my experience of working at the museum, I have never encountered an assemblage of material quite like this. So it's our earliest Viking Age hoard from Scotland, but it's so much more than just a Viking hoard. Normally Viking Age hoards are dominated by silver bullion, but the thing that makes it stand out from all other hoards is that it has a whole variety of materials in it other than silver. So it has more gold than any hoard from Britain and Ireland that we know of or that survives at the moment. It has 
a range of material that you wouldn't normally find in a Viking hoard. So it has Anglo-Saxon metalwork as well as Viking Age silver bullion. It has an unusual group of what look like heirlooms, much older objects. And it also has amazing organic preservation. So as well as the gold and the silver, we have textiles and wood and leather, things that don't normally survive in archaeological deposits. Amongst that is, quite amazingly, Scotland's earliest examples of silk, material that would have travelled thousands of miles to make it to Scotland. The people who were burying the hoard, we imagine that this is sometime around 900 AD, maybe a little bit before. What they seem to have done is almost created a decoy layer. So deeper down is the much richer deposit. That's where you get all of these mixed materials. That's where most of the gold is. They seem to have buried three parcels at the bottom and then put a layer of gravel on top of that so that it looked like the natural earth that surrounded it. And then they've put well, roughly 20-odd pieces of silver bullion and an Anglo-Saxon cross on top. And I think it's acting as a decoy. I think it's there in case somebody was watching, you know, it's almost like a security. You can afford to lose this bit and hopefully nobody will check what's there underneath. Very clever. But what do we know about this area of Scotland and what might have been happening there a thousand-odd years ago that made someone want to bury this esoteric collection of treasures. Let's meet someone who knows the lie of the land and has a nose for snuffling out the truffles of a good story. My name is Kirsty Wark. I am a broadcaster and a writer. I live in Glasgow. I was born in Dumfries and Galloway and only for the very early part of my life did I live in Castle Douglas, but I know the area well. I visit a lot. I went fishing there a lot with my father. The landscape is both undulating and hilly. They don't have any mountains in the southwest. It's very empty and vast. I think that's what I think is so interesting about it, but obviously coastal. It's a magical part of the country, and what is so magical about it is that it is beautiful and wild and actually fairly untravelled in modern-day times. So what I find so fascinating about this horde, it was so well-travelled a thousand years ago. And actually, there were people from all different areas. You know, there were Anglo-Saxons, there were Vikings that came. And I think you can hopefully see that reflected in the hoard, or at least to my amateur eye, it feels like that. We really don't know what life was like in Galloway at this point. It's not that it is the Dark Ages, but the reason the period is called the Dark Ages is because of the lack of historical record. What the hoard tells us is that there probably isn't a simple answer to the question of who or what people were living in Galloway at this point. We know that the historical record tells us about conflict, about these incomers from Scandinavia. But also, this is a hundred years, so AD 900 is a hundred years after the initial raids. The Scandinavian settlers are just that, they have settled they've married, they've made allies, they've taken over huge chunks of England, they have what you might think of as colonies all around Ireland. Potentially there is some sort of settlement or colonisation in Galloway. There are so many mysteries about this hoard, you know, who made it, why they made it, where they made it, for whom did they make it, why did it end up where it did in Galloway? 
Was it being hidden for a return? Was it some kind of strange sacrifice, except there were Christian artifacts in it? Was it a robber? You know, was it a robber? Thought he was going to come back for it. Was it before some kind of slaughter? I think the whole thing is utterly fascinating. It's Honestly, it's so exciting. It's one of the most exciting things to have happened in Scotland in the 21st century. So at the time the hoard was buried, this part of Scotland was a real meeting point of different cultures and peoples. But as is so often the case, it's the glamorous foreigners who really capture our attention. My name is Dr Claire Downham and I'm a reader at the Institute of Irish Studies at the University of Liverpool and my research is focused on contacts across the Irish Sea in the Viking Age. When the Vikings first arrived in Britain and Ireland at the end of the 8th century, they're famously recorded as heathens. That's often a label that's sort of slapped on them. And of course, a lot of their first activity is raiding church sites. You know, they were the hubs of wealth in the 8th and 9th centuries. By the early 10th century, Vikings had established a string of settlements around the Irish Sea region. The hoards and other archaeological evidence in the area suggest that the region of southwest Scotland was drawn into a network of Viking trading links across the Irish Sea. And this seems to have been responsible for bringing a vast amount of wealth into the region. Something must have happened that stopped the people who buried that hoard coming back. So either they were forced to leave and couldn't return, or they died. You're not going to bury your life savings and then forget where you put it. There's clearly a very exciting story there, but one which we can only imagine. We don't have the sources to tell us exactly what happened. What we do know is that the Irish Sea in the early 10th century was a dangerous place to be. There's quite a lot of political tension. We hear of sea battles being fought in the Irish Sea in the year 913-914. So it's possible whoever these people were who buried the Galloway Horde, that they had been drawn into the range of conflicts that are happening in the zone at that time, and that might be the reason why they never came back. It's like decoding a mystery. At every turn, something else pops up to give more clues. Even in that top decoy layer, there's a rare and unusual Anglo-Saxon cross. What on earth is that doing there? This has beautiful decoration on it in gold leaf and it's showing the four evangelists, so it's got heavy and rich Christian iconography on it. But it also has the, the very fine silver chain that would have allowed it to be worn around the neck. You can almost imagine the hand, you know, that wrapped this very fine silver chain around the cross when it was deposited in the ground. So then as you get further in, there are also unusual gold objects, beautiful objects like this bird pin that has become almost like an icon of the hoard. And we're not quite sure yet what that bird is. It has features that you would associate with a flamingo, this sort of curved neck, down curved beak, and even the sort of leg the leg of a flamingo, you know, the single pin kind of evokes that creature. But I wouldn't say that it is a realistic description. And I'm not sure whoever made this object even knew what a flamingo looked like. To me, it's actually a creature of the imagination, but it is a beautiful depiction nonetheless. That silver cross and the little bird-shaped brooch are just a small part of the range of precious metalwork objects in the hoard. They're beautiful and so skillfully made... Even contemporary jewellery makers have been astounded by what they've seen. I'm Catherine King. I run a business, Catherine King Designer Jewellery in Kikubri. I work mainly in precious metals, so it's um, silver, gold, platinum. My absolute passion is gemstones. 
nearly everything incorporates a gemstone. Within my jewellery, there's a lot of natural influence, whether it be sort of plants and the, the hills and water droplets, things like that, running water. So I think the scenery and the whole artistic heritage of Kukubri influences my work. Seeing those pieces of jewellery that were made so long ago, the techniques that were used, the patterns and the metal, the markings, they're actually so relevant to now. And I think that's one of the beauties of jewellery is it goes across time. The fact that these people were using the same metals a thousand years ago to what I'm using now makes me feel linked to, you know, a sort of a group of jewellers that we've carried on tradition and the techniques are very, very similar. We heat up the metal, it pours, it hammers. It's all the same techniques to make the jewellery. The fascination for me also being a jeweller is how did they make it? I look at these pieces and I think, well, I would struggle to make those hinges and I would struggle to get the accuracy on those pieces of jewellery. We all find the idea of Vikings rather thrilling. Raiders from across the sea with their horned helmets, long blonde plaits and ship burials. Although sad to say, the horned helmets are a bit of a myth. And it was probably not so thrilling if you were on the wrong end of a Viking raid. But it seems the Vikings may have had a bit of a bad press down the years. The fact that the Vikings seem to have targeted churches in their first raids on Britain and Ireland and the fact that the written records of those raids was kept within clerical communities means that, of course, they were naturally seen as an enemy in those early years. Warfare in the Viking Age was violent. There's no doubt that the Vikings raped and pillaged and burnt churches, but then so did other peoples in this period. I think the reason Vikings have this reputation is that maybe they were better at it. Certainly at the beginning of the Viking Age, their military technology and their ability to travel at speed over long distances by ship excels that of, of other cultures in Europe at the time. I think our popular image of the Vikings today is quite often based on Victorian reimaginings of the Vikings as much as it's based on contemporary 9th and 10th century evidence. So what we find is in the 19th century, the Vikings started to be seen as ancestors and also the fact that the Vikings didn't seem to be conventional, that appealed to kind of the romantic spirit. I think that really sort of captured the imagination of people in modern times and really the way that we see Vikings in modern culture now developed from that. So again, a popular perception about Vikings that they wore horned helmets. That doesn't relate to any archaeological evidence from the actual 8th and 9th centuries, but is part of that modern reimagining of what the Vikings were like. And of course, having horned helmets made them stand out and seem more kind of bestial in our public imagination. So I think we always have to be careful when we're looking at the past. Shame about the horned helmets. But I don't suppose the Vikings led an entirely quiet life and enjoyed nothing more than a trip to the garden centre, followed by settling down with the crossword and a nice cup of tea. But the refinement of the objects in the hoard does suggest that they were more sophisticated than you might think, with far-reaching trading networks and an appreciation of beautiful objects. One of the things that we would define as Viking are a lot of the broadband silver arm rings which are included in the hoard, and those are developed in Ireland. So they're a kind of Hiberno-Scandinavian currency ring that was used within the Viking communities as a way of transporting wealth. You bought and sold by weights of silver. So in theory, you could sort of, you know, chop up your armband into units and then use that for a trade transaction. And that's why those broadband arm rings don't tend to be highly decorated. They've just got this fairly 
fairly simple stamped pattern of ornament. And the nice thing about these arm rings is that you could choose whether you wanted to wear them in a concealed fashion, like a body belt, you could sort of have the loose folds of your tunic or cloak covering them up. But if you wanted to be a bit flashy or you were in trade negotiations with somebody, you could sort of just roll back your sleeve and all your silver would be lined out there. People could see exactly how much money they were talking about here. So there's certainly a flashiness to Viking Age culture. And you could just look at those big silver brooches as well. I mean, in theory, they could be melted down, but I think they are in your face bling. This Viking culture, it's very prowess based, you know, people really like to show off. So it's almost a bit like the sort of gangster bling of the Viking Age is to have this kind of heavy silver jewellery. You carry your wealth on your person. There is no such thing as a bank account in the Viking Age. You can't just sort of stash it all away. And that really helps give us an insight as to why the Galloway hoard was buried. If you can't take your money to a bank, you have to bury your silver somewhere safely in the hope it'll still be there when you come back later to recover it. And those silver bands reveal just what a cultural mashup the hoard is. Some of the silver bullion that we might think of as stereotypical of a Viking Age hoard has runic inscriptions on it, and those runic inscriptions seem to record elements of names. So Viking Age bullion, silver bullion, is expected for this period. But what isn't expected would be Anglo-Saxon runes on that Viking Age material. What you would normally expect with a Viking Age hoard is that it would have Scandinavian runes on it, but this one doesn't. It has Anglo-Saxon runes, and so again you've got that odd mixture, but it's a mixture that is telling us something about what is happening in Galloway at the beginning of the 10th century AD. I love the idea that what this hoard tells us is that the people in Galloway at that time their influences, their backgrounds, their own histories created a huge melting pot. Scotland hadn't even been made into Scotland by then. And I think that's got a lesson for us today that, you know, we are all mongrel nations. And so Scotland has been evolving and changing. We are of Viking descent. We are of all sorts of different descents. We take influences, whether it be art, culture, politics, from so many different sources. And I think unpicking this hoard will show how international we've all been for a very long time. There are four pieces of bullion in the lower deposit of the hoard that have these name elements on them. Those name elements, we hope, refer to people that were involved in either burying the hoard or perhaps in owning elements of it before it was buried. There is a fifth piece of silver bullion that came from the surrounding area. It's a tiny piece of silver bullion, but instead of having an abbreviation or just a name element on it, like the four in the lower deposit, it has a full name on it, and that name is Egbert. Now, Egbert, again, it's Anglo-Saxon runes, and it's an Old English name, but it was also a very, very common name at this point, so it's not somebody that we can pinpoint with any sort of certainty, but it's another clue that tells us something about the Horde. But how amazing to have that name from so long ago. I'd love to meet Egbert and tell him that his treasure has finally been recovered and is being kept safe behind glass. But Egbert is also translated as bright edge, as in a sword, so maybe it's a word of warning. Handle with care. 
it's a funny thing to think, you know, that somebody took the time to write their name on this tiny scrap of silver. You wonder what they were hoping to achieve by doing that. But that's what these major discoveries do. They open up a new window for us to see people in the past, to see the objects that they owned, the things they cherished, the way that they carefully wrapped them up if they were burying them. There is real insight to be gained from this type of discovery. The hoard is crammed with highlights, and as we carry on sifting through its contents, let's hear about some of the favourites for Claire Downham, Catherine King, and, first of all, Kirsty Walk. This hoard demonstrates such a lot of different ways to display beauty. You know, whether it's the thread of a silk, whether it's silver whether it's a quadrifoil cross. A couple of things I think are extraordinary. These hinged kind of, I don't know, it's like a hinge of a book would have been, but they're silver and they're beautifully decorated. I also think it's so exciting that people have been interested in aesthetics for as long as there were people. I think it would have to be the bird, the bird pin brooch. It's a unique insight, I think, into the individual, their social status, their wealth, their faith, superstition, allegiances. For people now, is an extension of their personal identity. I do feel a link to those people who made the jewellery so many years ago. I would love to have met them. I would love to have had a you know a chat about about techniques and and things and to be part of a traditional technique, a traditional metal smithing, is a nice feeling. One of the Anglo-Saxon quatrefoil brooches, so a silver round-shaped brooch, has these four little faces on it, and it seems to be a sort of representation of the sense of hearing. So two of the creatures are sort of blowing these trumpets from their mouths, and then two of the sort of faces which oppose them um, have these big flappy ears, um, but they all have this rather comical, startled look on their faces, um, and I think just for the sheer whimsy of it, it shows us that the people who created it had a sense of humour, and again, I think humour is a great connection between ourselves and people in the past. We find it amusing, they would have found it amusing. I love that sense of connection across the centuries, the idea that I might have shared a joke with Egbert and his mates. But down towards the bottom of the excavation, there was a bit of a surprise. At the heart of the hoard, in the lower deposit, there is a vessel with a lid on it. Because the vessel was wrapped and because it had a lid on it, there is also substantial organic preservation inside. So we have lots of gold objects. We have these older heirloom objects. One of them looks like a rock crystal, an antique rock crystal, as it would have been in the 10th century AD. So something much older. And it's covered in gold. It looks like it's a small jar. Just to emphasise how significant it is, it has then been wrapped in a triple-layered pouch. And the innermost layer is silk, the outermost layer is leather, so it's almost like a modern jeweller's pouch. Within the lidded vessel of the hoard, almost a little micro-environment was created. And so the environment within the vessel helped to preserve even more textiles, and almost every object was wrapped in some sort of fabric. So that's why we have leather and silk and linen surviving. And for me, silks and organic material are treasures in their own right because they can tell us all sorts of things through their very rare survival and the science that we can then apply to these types of materials. You can't date gold, you know, we can't radiocarbon date that gold pin, but it was buried in a wooden box 
And so we can do a lot more with that wooden box than we might be able to do with the gold pin itself. The research that we've already managed to do as we've been conserving the hoard has told us the sort of start of the story. It's then fitting that all together into, you know, a giant jigsaw puzzle that might help us understand a lot more about the world during the Viking Age. And when I say the world, I don't really feel like I'm exaggerating at this point because we think that the silk might have come from potentially Asia, whether that's the closest parts of Asia, so somewhere like the Byzantine Empire or, or the furthest parts of Asia, we don't yet know. But we're hoping that we'll be able to discover that with future research. And I think this does highlight that obviously we do have this sort of barbarian stereotype of the Vikings. It's all a bit Hagar the Horrible that they just went and plundered and drank heavily and stuff like that. But they obviously had a keen appreciation for the finer things in life and for luxuries. And of course, these are things that could be traded across large distances and could command a high price. So the fact that they include silk reinforces this sort of showy aspect of Viking Age society. I mean, in our society nowadays, often we think about labels and people want to wear certain labels to show off their status. But in the Viking Age, it was just very beautiful clothing of the highest quality, beautiful silver jewellery. For modern day travellers, we sort of think of Western Scotland as perhaps being a bit remote in our mental map of Europe. But the Galloway Horde shows us that these areas were really at the centre of where it was all happening in the Viking Age. The Irish Sea and the routes north and south were kind of thoroughfares in the Viking world, part of the trading hub of the Viking Age. The thing about this hoard is it is increasingly amazing. There is such a great amount of detail and a great amount of variety in the material in the hoard that the story just keeps growing and growing. At times it is hard work and painstaking, but the material is absolutely unbelievable and it's incredibly rewarding. There are just numerous moments of discovery and I'm sure there are even more to be had in the future. The discovery of the Galloway Horde gives hope to any of us who've ever put something away and then wondered where it was. And of course, it's starting to shed light on a mysterious era in our history. I think it's going to be years before we unravel the mysteries that are embedded in that hoard. There's so many stories that can be told there. And yeah, so many items that don't fit our conventional narrative of what the Vikings were like. Sometimes we need to uncloud ourselves of the kind of popular perceptions that have developed around a group in history and go back to the primary sources, things such as the Galloway Hoard, to tell us what they were really like. If you look at each object in the hoard, and you think about the number of people that were involved in making it or in gathering together the materials to make that object, the people that might have then commissioned it and worn it, the people who might have traded them, the people that then buried them, suddenly over those hundred objects you're looking at almost a thousand ancient lives. This is definitely some of the most amazing material I've ever had to work with. The Galloway Hoard is part of the collection of National Museums Scotland. It was acquired with the help of the Art Fund. You've been listening to Art and Stuff with me, Ben Miller. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe and tell your friends. 